Chapter Four of Raspberry Jam by Caroline Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Embrace. And that's my last word on the subject. Embry lighted one cigarette from the stub of another and deposited the stub in the ash tray at his elbow. It was Sunday afternoon, and the peculiar relaxedness of that day of rest and gladness had somewhat worn on the nerves of both Sanford and Eunice. Aunt Abby was napping, and it was too early yet to look for their expected visitor, Handlin. Eunice had been once again endeavoring to persuade her husband to give her an allowance, a stated sum, however small, that she might depend upon regularly. The Embrys fulfilled every requirement of the condition known as happily married, save for this one item. They were congenial, affectionate, good-natured, and quite ready to make allowances for each other's idiosyncrasies or whims. With this one exception, Eunice found it intolerable to be cramped and pinched for small amounts of ready cash when her husband was a rich man. Nor was Embry mean or even economical of nature. He was more than willing that his wife should have all the extravagant luxuries she desired he was entirely ready to pay any and all bills that she might contract. Never had he chided her for buying expensive or unnecessary finery. Even more, he had always admired her taste and shown pleasure at her purchases. He was proud of her beauty and willing it should be adorned. He was proud of her grace and charm and willing that the household appointments should provide an appropriate setting for her hospitality they were both fond of entertaining and never was there a word of protest from him as to the amounts charged by florists and caterers and yet by reason of some crank crotchet or perverse notion Embry was unwilling to give his wife what is known as pin money. Buy your pins at the best jewelers, he would laugh, and send the bills to me. Buy your hats and gowns from the Frenchest shops. You can get credit anywhere on my name. Good Lord, Tiger, what more can a woman want? nor would he agree to her oft-repeated explanations that there were a thousand and one occasions when some money was an absolute necessity. Or, if persuaded, he gave her a small amount and expected it to last indefinitely. It is difficult to know just what was the reason for this attitude. Sanford Embry was not a miser, he was not penurious or stingy. He subscribed liberally to charities, many of them unknown to the public or even to his wife. But some trick of nature, some twist in his brain, 
made this peculiarity of his persistent and ineradicable. Now, Eunice Embry was possessed of a quick, sometimes ungovernable temper. It was because of this that her husband called her Tiger, and also, as he declared, because her beautiful, lithe grace was suggestive of the fearful symmetry of the forest tribe. She had tried honestly to control her quick anger, but it would now and then assert itself in spite of her, and Embry delighted to liken her to Catherine, and declared that he must tame her as Petruchio tamed his shrew. This annoyed Eunice far more than she let him know, for she was well aware that if he thought it teased her, he would more frequently try Petruchio's methods. So, when she flew into a rage, and he countered with a fiercer anger, she knew he was assuming it purposely, and she usually quieted down as the better part of valor. On this particular occasion, Eunice had taken advantage of a quite pleasant tete-a-tete -tete to bring up the subject. Embry had heard her pleading, not unkindly, but with a bored air, and had finally remarked, as she paused in her arguments, I refuse, Eunice, to give you a stated allowance. If you haven't sufficient confidence in your husband's generosity, to trust him to give you all you want or need, and even more than that, then you are ungrateful for what I have given you, and that's my last word on the subject. The rank injustice of this was like iron entering her soul. She knew his speech was illogical, unfair, and even absurd, but she knew no words of hers could make him see it so and in utter exasperation at her own impotence she flung her self-control to the winds and let go of her temper well it isn't my last word on the subject she cried i have something further to say that is your woman's privilege and embry smiled irritatingly at her not only my privilege but my duty I owe it to my self-respect, to my social position, to my standing as your wife, the wife of a prominent man of affairs, to have at my command a sum of ready money when I need it. You know perfectly well I do not want it for anything wrong or for anything that I want to keep secret from you. You know I have never had a secret from you, nor do I wish to have. I simply want to do as other women do. Even the poorest, the meanest man, will give his wife an allowance, a little something that is absolutely her own. Why, most of the women of my set have a checking account at the bank. They all have a personal allowance. So? Embry took up another cigarette. You may remember, Eunice, I have spoken my last word on the subject. And you may remember that I have not, but I will, and right now, 
and it is simply that since you refuse me the pleasure and convenience of some money for everyday use i shall get some from another source Embrace's eyes narrowed and he surveyed his wife with a calm scrutiny then he smiled stenography and typewriting he said or shall you take in plain sewing cut out the threads eunice they won't get you anywhere they will get me where i want to arrive don't say i didn't warn you i repeat i shall get money for my personal use and you will have no right to criticize my methods since you refuse me a paltry sum by way of allowance eunice was standing her two hands tightly grasping a chair back as she looked angrily at embry who still seated lazily blew smoke rings toward her she was magnificent in her anger her cheeks burned crimson her dark eyes had an ominous gleam in them and her curved lips straightened into a determined line of scarlet her muscles were strained and tense her breath came quickly yet she had full control of herself and her pose was that of a crouching waiting tiger rather than a furious ode embry was full of admiration at the beautiful picture she made but pursuant of his inexorable plan he rose to tame her tiger tiger burning bright he quoted you must take back that speech it is neither pretty nor tactful i have no wish to be tactful why should i i'm not trying to coax or cajole you you refuse my request you have repeatedly refused me now i am at the end of my patience and i shall take matters into my own hands lovely hands he murmured taking them in his own you have unusually pretty hands eunice it would be a pity to use them to earn money yet that is my intention i shall get money by the work of these hands it will be in a way that you will not approve but you have forfeited your right to approve or disapprove that i have not i am your husband you have promised to obey me a mere form of words it meant nothing our marriage ceremony meant nothing if it did remember that you endowed me with all your worldly goods and i have given them to you too do you know that nine-tenths of my yearly expenditures are for your pleasure and benefit i enjoy our home too but it would not be the elaborate luxurious establishment that it is but that it suits your taste to have it so and then you whine and fret for what you yourself call a paltry matter ingrate don't you dare call me ingrate i owe you no gratitude do you give me this home as a charity as a gift even it is my right 
and it is also my right to have a bank account of my own it is my right to uphold my head among other women who laugh at me who ridicule me because with all your wealth i have no purse of my own i will not stand it i rebel and you may rest assured things are going to be different hereafter i will get money you shall not embry grasped the wrists of the hands he still held and his face was fiercely frowning you are my wife and whatever you may or may not owe to me you owe it to our position to our standing in the community to do nothing beneath your dignity or mine you care nothing for my dignity for my appearance before other women so why should i consider your dignity you force me to it and it is therefore your fault if i what is it you propose to do how are you going to get this absurd paltry sum you are making such a fuss about that i decline to tell you don't you dare to do needlework or anything that would make me look foolish i forbid it and i scorn your forbidding make you look foolish indeed when you make me look foolish every day of my life because i can't do as other women do can't have what other wives have now now tiger don't make such a row over nothing let's talk it over seriously there is nothing to talk over i have asked you time and again for an allowance of money real money not charged accounts and you always refuse and i always shall if you are so ugly about it why must you fly into rage over it your temper is my temper is roused by your cruelty cruelty yes it's as much cruelty as if you struck me you deny me my heart's dearest wish for no reason whatever it's enough that i don't approve of allowance it ought to be enough that i do no no my lady i love you i adore you but i'm not the sort of man to lie down and let you walk over me i give you everything you want if i reserve the privilege of paying for it myself it does not seem to me a crime oh do hush up sanford you drive me frantic you prayed the same foolishness over and over i don't want to hear any more about it you said you had spoken the last word on the subject now stop it i too have said my final say i shall do as i please and i shall not consider myself accountable to you for my actions confound it do what you please then i wash my hands of your nonsense but be careful how you carry the name i have given you if you keep on i may decide not to carry it at all eunice was interrupted by the entrance of ferdinand announcing the arrival of mason elliot trained in the school of convention both the embrys became at once the courteous cordial host and hostess hello elliot sang out sanford glad to see your bright and happy face come right along and chum in 
Eunice offered her hand with a welcoming smile. Just the boy I was looking for, she said. We have the jolliest game on for the afternoon, haven't we, San? Full trick, if you ask me, howsoever everything goes. Interested in thought transference, Bunk, Elliot? I know what you're getting at. Mason Elliot nodded his head understandingly. Hendricks put me wise, so I says to myself, supposing I hop along and listen in. Yes, I'm interested, sufficiently so, not to mind your jeers about Bunk and that. Oh, do you believe in it, Mason? said Eunice animatedly. For this is a faked affair, or rather the explanation of one. It's the Handlin boy, you know. Yes, I know. But what's the racket with you turtle doves? I came in and find Eunice wearing the pet expression of a tragedy queen, and Samford here doing the irate husband, going into the movies. Yes, that's it. And Eunice smiled bravely. Although her lips still quivered from her recent tripulent quarrel, and a light, jaunty air was forced to conceal her lingering nervousness. A great husband is good, laughed Embry, considering we are yet honeymooners. Good dissemblers, both of you. And Elliot settled himself in an easy chair. But you don't fool your old friend. Talk about thought transference. It doesn't take much of that commodity to read that you two were interrupted by my entrance in the middle of a real, honest-to-goodness, cats-and-dogs quarrel. All right, have it your own way. And Embry laughed shortly. But it wasn't the middle of it. It was about over. All but the making up. Shall I fade away for fifty minutes? No protested Eunice. It was only one of the little tiffs that happen in the best families. Now listen, Mason. My dear lady, I live but on the chance of being permitted to listen to you, only in hope that I may listen early and often. Oh, hush, what a silly you are. Silly, is it? Remember, I was your childhood playmate. Would you have kept me on your string all these years if I were silly? And here's another of my childhood friends. How do you do, most gracious lady? With courtly difference, Elliot rose to greet Aunt Abby, who came into the living room from Eunice's bedroom. Her black silk rustled and her old point lace fell yellowly round her slender old hands. For on Sunday afternoon, Miss Ames dressed the part. How are you, Mason? she said, but with a preoccupied air. What time is Mr. Hanlon coming, Eunice? Soon now, I think. And Eunice spoke with an entire composure, her angry excitement all subdued. It was characteristic of her that after a fit of temper, she was more than usually soft and gentle, more considerate of others, and even more roguishly merry. 
you know mason that what we are to be told to-day is a most inviolable secret that is it is a secret until to-morrow never put off till to-morrow what you can tell to-night returned Elliot. but he listened attentively while eunice and aunt abby described the performance of the young man hanlon of course Elliot observed a little disappointedly if he says he hoaxed the crowd of course he did but in that case i have no interest in the thing i'd like it better if he were honest oh he's honest enough corrected embry he owns right up that it was a trick why good heavens man if it hadn't been he couldn't have done it at all i'm rather keen to know just how he managed though for the yearn of eunice and aunt abby is a bit mystifying don't depend too much on the tale of interested spectators they are the worst possible witness they see only what they wish to see only what hanlon wished us to see corrected eunice gaily and then hanlon himself and ovid hendricks arrived together met on the doorstep said hendricks as he came in mr hanlon is a little stage struck so it's lucky i happened along willie hanlon as he was called in the papers came shyly forward and eunice with her ready tact proceeded to put him at once at his ease you came just at the right minute to help me out she said smiling at him they are saying women are no good at describing a scene they say that we can't be relied on for accuracy so now you are here and you can tell what really happened yes ma'am and hanlon swallowed a little embarrassedly that's what i came for ma'am but first are you all straight goods will you all promise not to tell what i tell you before tomorrow morning they all promised on their honour and satisfied hanlon began his tale you see it's a game that can't be played too often or too close together he said i mean if i put it over around here i can't risk it again nearer than some several states away and even then it's likely to get caught on too have you put it over often asked hendricks interestedly yes sir well say about a dozen times altogether now i'm going to shuck it for it's too risky and so i have sold the story of how i do it to the newspaper syndicate for more than i would make out of it in a dozen performances you can read it all in tomorrow's papers but mrs embry she asked me to tell it here and i said yes cause cause well cause i wanted to the boyish outburst was so unmistakably one of admiration of immediate capitulation to eunice's charm that she blushed adorably and the others laughed outright one more scalp uni said Elliot. oh you can't help it i know 
Go on, Mr. Hanlon. And he went on. You see, to make you understand it rightly, I must go back a ways. I have done all sorts of magic stunts, and I'm kind of fond of athletics. I've given exhibitions along both those lines, in athletic clubs and in ladies' parlors, too. Well, I had a natural talent for making my ears move. Lots of fellows do that, I know, but I got pretty spry at it. What for? asked Embry. Nothing particular, sir. Only one thing led to another. One day, I read in an English magazine about somebody pulling off this trick, this blindfold chase, and I said to myself, believed I could do it first rate, and maybe make easy money. I don't deny I'm out after the coin. I've got to get my living. And if I'd rather do it by gulling the public, why, it's no more than many a better man does. Right you are, said Elliot. So, say so I say, I read this piece that told just how to do it, and I set to work. You may think it's funny. But the first step was working my forehead muscles. Whatever for? cried Aunt Abby, who was listening, perhaps most intently of all. I will tell you in a jiffy, ma'am, and Hanlon smiled respectively at the eager old face. You see, if you will take notice, the muscle of your forehead, just above your eyebrows, Work whenever you shut or open your eyes. Yes, try it, ma'am. As Aunt Abby wrinkled her forehead spasmodically, Shut your eyes, ma'am. Now cover them closely with the palm of your left hand. Press it close. So, now with your hand there, open your eyes slowly and feel your forehead muscles go up. They have to. You can't help it. Now, that's the keynote of the whole thing. Clear as Erebus, remarked Hendricks. I don't get you, Steve. Nor I. And Eunice sat with her hand against her eyes, drawing her lovely brows into contortions. Well, never mind trying. I'll just tell you about it. Hanlon laughed good-naturedly at the frantic attempts of all of them to open their eyes in accordance with his directions. Anyhow, you gentlemen know, for I know you all belong to a big athletic club, that if you exercise any set of muscles regularly and for a long time, they will develop and expand and become greatly increased in size and strength. Sure, said Hendricks, I once developed my biceps. Yes, that's what I mean. Well, sir, I worked at my forehead muscles some hours a day for months, and I kept at it until I had those muscles not only developed and in fine working condition, but absolutely under my control. Look. They gazed fascinated while the strange visitor moved the skin of his forehead up and down and sideways, and in strange circular movements, he seemed distinctly proud of his accomplishment 
and pause for approbation. Marvellous, Holmes, marvellous, exclaimed Hendricks, who had discovered that Hanlon did not resent jocularity. But what for? Can't you guess? And the young man smiled mysteriously. Try. Give it up. And Hendricks shook his head. I think it's more wonderful to get through transference by wiggling your forehead than any other way I ever heard of, but I can't guess how it helps. Can't any of you? And Hanlon looked around the circle. Wait a minute, said Aunt Abby, who was thinking hard. Let me try. Is it because when the thought waves jump from the guide to you, they strike your forehead first? And it acts as a wireless receiving station. No, ma'am, that isn't it. And too, ma'am, I owned up, you know, that the whole thing was a fake, a trick. You see, there was no thought transference, not any, none at all. Then what do you accomplish with your forehead muscles? Ask Eunice, unable to restrain her impatience. End of chapter 4